Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There's a story in The Spectator today from uh, Matthew Van Dongen. How bad is rush hour traffic in Hamilton? An analysis from geolocation company TomTom suggests your drive might be getting a little slower because apparently now Hamiltonians, people now getting back to work after, you know, really the end of COVID, everyone's now back. Thing, more cars in the road, things are slowing down. But how do we balance all, and there's lots of them, all the desires and demands of everybody who has different points of view about our infrastructure for transit. How do we do that? Well, I don't know if my next guest has the answer, but he's going to be put on the spot as one of the 16 people tasked with finding that. His name is John Paul Danko. He's a counselor for for Ward 8. John Paul, how are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. This is, um, I, okay, I would say housing is probably your issue biggest issue right now, but I don't know that transportation and transit is all that far behind on the priority list of council. Would I be wrong? Well, housing and transportation, quality of life, cost of living, uh, all those issues are directly related. Um, The city Hamilton is expected to grow by 235,000 new residents uh, and another 120,000 or so new jobs by 2051. And we have to start planning for how all those new residents and the current residents are going to get around the city. And that means some pretty significant changes to how we approach transportation and how our transportation network uh, is, is used. And we got to start planning for that. Do you have any illusions that this can be done making everybody happy or almost everybody happy? We have to make sure that the city Hamilton is livable and that people can get where they need to go, that businesses can get their products wherever they need to go. Uh, right now, about 76% of Ward 8, Ward 8 residents, about 70% citywide, actually work within the city of Hamilton. So the vast majority of Hamilton residents are working within the city of Hamilton. Um, we got to make sure that they can get to work, that they can get to uh, wherever they need to go to pick up their kids from school or whatever it is. Um, Right now, about 85% of people are using a a single occupancy vehicle, Uh, about 7.5% using transit, uh, walking is about 4%, and only less than 1% bicycle uh, or or cycle. the fact is just the physical constraints of our city and the growth that is, is coming, uh, we cannot accommodate the level of growth that, that is on its way uh, just by relying on, on, on cars on, in the road network. So we're starting to think about the entire road network as a, as a transportation network with all those different modes of transportation as options and trying to make sure that people have uh, the best option that makes sense for them available. You raise something that I think, I, I'm glad you did, because I think it probably creates the biggest challenge in this city is that, you know, we're often compared to, you know, pick whatever. People say, oh, I wish we were like whatever European city, Amsterdam or whatever. With the mountain, with the spread of this, with the way this city geographically is, it's way more complicated than looking at some other flat city that is very centralized and saying, yeah, be like them. It's, it's not that easy. So Hamilton definitely has a very complex uh, transportation network with with the lake on one side, with the mountain as as effectively being a a divider with only those mountain accesses, connections in between. 
And then with uh, our the size of the city, Hamilton. Hamilton is an enormous municipality when you consider uh, the rural areas as well. So all of that uh, comes together in, in where people are going to be living and how they're going to get around the city. Uh, along with some of the new changes in technology, um, I know in, in the Spectator article it mentioned that uh, when you plug your phone into your nav system on your car uh, now, you know, it's, it's telling you the best route and it's taking into account traffic. It's taking into account construction. And a lot of times as well, when you search, it'll also show you transit options or walking options. And if you're looking at it, sometimes, hey, look at that cycling option is actually faster than if I were to drive. And for, you know, people like me, a lot of your listeners that grew up in Hamilton that we just kind of go in autopilot, right? When we're going somewhere, this happens to me all the time. My wife will ask me, you know, why did you go that way? I'm like, I don't know. That's the way I always go. <laughs> um, but, you know, things are changing. Our city is evolving. And some of those routes, are, you know, are a bit different now. Do we, um, the fact that with all the construction that's about to start, especially downtown, I know your ward is on the mountain, but with all the stuff going on downtown with the two-way conversion of Maine and then with King Street eventually being redone and the LRT and everything else, do we, do you expect that people are going to use the city the same way they always did or when things get more congested and when travel gets a little more difficult that people are simply going to almost retreat to their part of the city and not go other places as often? I think every part of the city is evolving. Uh, I think the downtown is probably the most advanced um, where there's new development and new infill and we can see it happening right now. Uh, but there are other major transportation corridors like Upper James uh, is going to be seeing major uh, infill development over the next 10 to 15 years. The Centennial Parkway corridor, all of the historic downtowns, you know, in Dundas and Stony Creek and Ancaster uh, will be seeing significant growth. So that every part of the city is evolving. And I think, you know, as a municipality, we're, we're Canada's 10th largest municipality, and we're going to continue to grow. And how we change as a city, it does take some uh, time to get used to just the mindset that we're, we're no longer, you know, a 300,000 person community, that we're double that size, and we're soon to be triple that size. And there is a big difference between how, uh, you know, smaller cities operate and where we're going to be in, in the next 20 years. Uh, there is, uh, you know, time here is limited and, and there is a lot more information. The part of the reason I had John Paul on right now is because, uh, he puts out a ward eight publication newsletter regularly. And this was one of the things that's touched on of the strategic transportation review. Uh, you can find it at ward eight, number eight, ward eight, Hamilton.ca. And, uh, there's more information about that. Uh, listen, Councillor Danko, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. Happy to, uh, to come on anytime you need it. <laughs> that is, uh, as I say, it is probably, uh, I would argue, and he, he mentioned a few others, but I would argue that housing, I don't even think there's an argument. I think housing is unquestionably, clearly the number one issue for this council right now. Every council seems to have an issue. Remember, we had the stadium issue, we had the Red Hill Creek issue, we had the link issue, we had whatever, the LRT. Housing right now, I think there's not even a question. It's this council's cross to bear. This is the thing that they are going to be, it is going to be defined by because it is the issue right now. 
But I think I would put transportation behind that for some of the reasons that I just highlighted with Councillor Danko. We have this two-way conversion of Main Street. That is going to have an impact. We'll talk about that more another time. We have King Street that eventually is going to be dug up for LRT and then the LRT. There's a lot of things that are going to be happening that are going to affect transportation for better, for worse in this city. And that's just on the lower city. The two-way conversion of Main Street for more complicated reasons than we have time to talk about right now, I believe is going to affect our highway, 403, QEW going by, 403 going up and down the mountain around the Spectator building when you're getting off at Maine or getting off at York, getting off at Aberdeen. I think there's all kinds of things. This transportation, I would say, is probably the second issue that falls behind housing for this council. It is really, really complicated and really, really important. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have I got a job for you? And to be able to discuss that job, let me bring in Eric Alper. He is a music publicist and a music writer and an expert in the field. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am expert. Now, I don't are know you if you're... you tell me that AG doesn't stand for the Attorney General? It, well, it, it could. I don't know that anyone's going to call him or her a precious metal, though. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, that's, that's probably just why I failed science. He, well, a few of us may have come <laughs> close. So the um, this may be the greatest job application scenario ever. And I've heard of something like this before, but not like this. Smashing Pumpkins are looking for a new guitarist. And I guess somehow they said, hey, if you want to try out to be our guitarist, (laughs) let us know. They have 10,000 applications. They have had to hire staff in order to wade through the applications that people are sending in to say, I should be Smashing Pumpkins' new guitarist. That's awesome. It is. And, you know, uh, when... When something like this happens, when you're a band and you're missing a band member, um, usually it's done internally. Usually you kind of put out, you know, the word on the street per se, or you talk to other guitarists and you, you do things quietly so that it might not disrupt the, the fan idea that somebody in the band has left or somebody that has developed that kind of communication or connection with somebody. Um, but the Smashing Pumpkins are going out on tour with Green Day in 2024, and they are down a guitarist. And so what Billy Corrigan, the lead singer and leader um, de facto of the Smashing Pumpkins, has done is he just put out a call on social media to say, hey, if you've ever had a dream of playing in the Smashing Pumpkins, now's your chance. You can send a videotape um, in care of our management and put the email address on there. Um, oh, and I saw this. So I was like, that's pretty great. Like, I wonder if this is just a PR move. I wonder if this is just a publicity stunt. Could they be. They already have their, their guy or their girl that they're going to put in the band, and they're just looking for some free publicity. And no, it turned out that this is absolutely legit. And over 10,000 people have submitted their their proposal and their video, which is great because now they've got a whole new angle of what they can talk about when they go do the media rounds when this tour happens. I I mean, this is not without some precedent, although uh, again, slightly different. I mean, my, uh, I'm sure there's lots of stories. The favorite one that I ever heard of was Journey needed a new lead singer. And one of the guys from Journey is watching YouTube videos late at night and finds a karaoke singer who sounds like Steve Perry, who lives in the Philippines, who doesn't yeah. speak any English. 
and says, let's bring him over here because man, does he sound like Steve Perry, but is this, you know, using some sort of technology or whatever to adjust his voice? And he sounds just like Steve Perry and joined the band. Yeah, and there's an amazing documentary um, that is out called Don't Stop Believing, Every Man's Journey, and it's precisely that, and that's exactly what happened. They were auditioning world-class singers and very known people to replace Steve Perry in the band Journey. Their other band members thought that, well, let's keep going on. And keep in mind, this is like, this is 2010, 2011. This is before... You and I have had many conversations about this before all these classic rockers started losing members due to old age and retirement and in some cases death, and they would continue to go on without nary a blip in the ocean of popularity. This was strange because you were using a, a, a way of, of something like YouTube to find, at least seemingly they were looking just for jokes for like cover bands of Journey just to see what might be out there. And they found this grainy, older video of somebody's like probably iPhone 3 filming <laughs> on a karaoke bar in the Philippines. And this guy's sound was amazing. And they literally went down to the Philippines with only an address and not much hope that this person is alive, is real. Yeah, sane, um, looks whatever, and they found it, and and to this day he still he still sings with the band. Yeah, and and you know that he must be brilliant because he was born the exact same day I was, day, year, everything. <laughs> I mean, his birthday is off by one day from me, but because of the time difference, we're born on the same day. So Arnel yeah, Pineda, uh, Arnel Pineda. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and in the documentary what was what was amazing about it because again, in 2012 when this doc came out, there weren't any bands that were talking about mental health issues. Certainly, this is before Instagram and and definitely before TikTok even existed. Um but he was having some issues. He was having um day-to-day psychological blocks about um is he a phony? Um, do they really like him? Do the audiences really like him, or are they just applauding what he's been able to replicate with Steve Perry? Are they really enjoying him being in the band? Do the band members really like him, or are they making fun of him behind his back? He went through a lot of anguish, um, which is what happens when you get plucked out of absolute obscurity, and suddenly you're playing to 25,000 screaming people a night. Yeah, and I mean, as I say, there are other... Examples. I mean, Queen has been touring with Adam Lambert, but it, it's not—it's not the same as looking for what, like, with what Smashing Pumpkins is probably maybe doing, where you're literally looking for—it's almost a lottery win. You can be Joe Blow, who's yeah. playing guitar in a garage band somewhere, and suddenly you're playing on tour with them, or you're karaoke singing in Manila, and now you're on stage with Journey. That—that is—that is a way cooler story. Yeah, and especially because in the age of social media, you really don't have to go out and ask for tape. There's a lot of places where you can go to, but they've made it really fun for people. I mean, rock and roll and music is the dirty dreams of hope, really. I mean, it's an absolute scuzzy industry. Um, 
anybody except for me would sell their mother for a hit. Um, <laughs> my mom would, would kill me if I ever kind of agreed to that. But, um, you know, this is, this is the, the industry where people have left family members behind, wives behind, husbands behind, um, developed drug problems, alcohol problems, early death. Like, this is not an industry that, that treats people kindly once you're in it and once you start having hits, because that's only the beginning. So the fact that 10,000 people want something like this and 100,000 people are still uploading their brand new songs up to Spotify every single day in hopes of going viral or just capturing magic in a lightning bottle. They, all of that gives me hope that there's still hope for a future that some snot-nosed 15-year-old dreams of being in the Smashing Pumpkins. I love that. I do too. Now, what, okay, where dreams go to die... I, I saw this story that uh, Barry Manilow has a new Broadway musical coming out fe- featuring the music of his catalog, uh, as does Huey Lewis, as yeah. does Alicia Keys, as does David Byrne, as does Melissa Etheridge, and I'm sure I've forgotten about a hundred others. Are, should we now be cursing ABBA? for doing Mamma Mia that all of a sudden launched this thing where every artist apparently has to turn their catalog into a Broadway musical? No, I, I hate to tell you this, but you're just going to have to to put that anger inwards. Um, you and I have talked on the show a lot about um, artists like a Bob Dylan, a Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young, and a lot of those artists that you just mentioned in the last six or seven years have essentially sold their catalog to a third-party yep. company, uh, venture capitalists, um, record labels. They now own the right to exploit um, and do whatever they want to do with those songs, and all they had to do was sign over a check for $300 million in some cases. Huey Lewis was somewhere around $80 million. Melissa Etheridge was somewhere around 90. Springsteen was over $450 million. Um, but these companies now have the right to put them in commercials and television shows and movies without having to get permission from the artist. Bruce Springsteen never wanted his music in a commercial. Now there's three of them. Um, and so now what you're seeing are these companies going through absolutely every opportunity to get this music in front of people, to sell those CDs, to sell the vinyl, to sell the merchandise um, with the person's name on it that they own to um, and exploit it because now they want their money back. That wasn't a big birthday gift. That was, a, uh, uh, you know, those $300 million that were spent on Bob Dylan, um, they're going to want that money very, very quickly and as fast as possible. And so they're going to put the, those songs in television shows and commercials and Broadway. Yeah. And, and look, there have been a few of them that have been apparently pretty good. I've seen Mamma Mia. It was fun. It was, you know, that was the first one. That's when it got yeah. started. That was good. I know Billy Joel, uh, I think it was called 52nd Street was the one that was of his you know, music and his story. I believe there was a Springsteen one, but yeah. if there hasn't been you're right. I, I kind of fully expect that anybody, and I mean, even if it's not Broadway, I mean, the Beatles, uh, that Las Vegas Cirque du Soleil show, Love, was, the, you know, was theirs. Yeah, I love that. Um, it, you're, you're right. I think we're going to see the next phase because you can't sell CDs anymore. No one will buy it because they stream. Yeah. And nobody buys, I don't think, does anybody actually buy music on streaming? Do they actually buy the digital copy or just download it? So this is the way that you're going to make money if you're an artist. 
yeah, this is this is the way to do it. It's going to be, um, you know, all those. Pit, I mean, you know, the music industry back in 1910 used to tell the songwriters um, who who sat there in the rooms and writing the songs that that the radio stations um, that were quickly starting up afterwards. Um, but the song publisher would tell the songwriters that we're going to give you, you know, a, a penny every time that we sell a a piano roll of your music or the sheet music for your music. We're going to give you a penny. And the songwriter scoffed at that. And But those pennies added up to dollars. And those dollars added up to millions of dollars um, in today's money. So there's definitely money to be made in streaming at 0.004 cents. I mean, somebody like The Weeknd, for instance, with Blinding Lights being the most streamed song ever in music history on Spotify, it's at 4 billion streams. That's about $32 million he's made just from that one song. Um, now, those things are rare. But more and more, people are making you know, a couple of million dollars on these superstar hits that um, that they wouldn't normally make. I mean, that's the dirty little secret of the industry, is that for most of these artists, and I'm talking like even the Rolling Stones, they never really made that much money on their on their record releases anyway. They just used it as an excuse to really rake in the, uh, those dollars going out on tour, because they were always in debt to the record label in terms of advances that were paid in order for them to go in the studio on the record label's money. Um, it's like a loan. And then those loans need to be paid. And so where the Rolling Stones are selling a million dollars, all that really goes down to paying off their debt for the studio, the limos, the cars, the everything. So this is going to be really interesting to see who is, you know, whose story is going to go out. It's not just Broadway. It's all these documentaries that are coming out. Um, yeah, yeah. You know. Oh, and, and look, the, the, I mean, there, there are some great ones. There are some great ones that, uh, you know, it's, it's not about not wanting any of them to do it. It's, I just don't know that all of them need to do it. But, you know, that's, as you say, that's where, uh, where things are. All right, we got a couple minutes left. And you got to help me out with this because this next one, I don't know. I, I literally know zero about what I'm going to ask you next. So you're going to have to walk me through this one. There is a singer named Hatsune Miku who is performing at Coachella this year, which is a huge festival. Uh, and people are losing their minds about this. And yet most people listening probably have no idea who Hatsune Miku is. Why is this such a big deal? It's a big deal because not only is she headlining one of the giant stages of Coachella and going to be performing to anywhere between 80 and 90,000 people, but she doesn't exist. In fact, she's entirely 100% created by AI, by a Japanese company who has released music under her name and have developed graphics to be this person with giant pigtails with big blue eyes, really good looking, like an anime cartoon character if you're in it, but she doesn't exist. All right. Is, so this isn't, so this is not a Millie Vanilli situation where no. you've got actual singers, but you've got a front group that's looking like, cause they're better looking. This is a non-existent even voice. A non-existent participant in the AI world. Yeah, which is going to be amazing to see how they're going to pull this off, if they're going to just do graphics or if they're going to do animation on a screen. Um, but, you know, this is going to be one of those moments that the music industry could very well change forever. Think about it. If this goes off well, you're yeah. going to have more and more producers and managers and record labels think about this. 
um, and do this in the future. These digital pop stars, they can be available all day and night to answer questions from fans on Twitter or TikTok. They have absolute consistency in performance. They're never going to have an off night. They're never going to have a drug problem. They're never going to sleep with the, with the drummer's girlfriend or boyfriend. They're never going to fight with anybody. The, the creative possibilities are going to be endless. They can create songs within five minutes based on a trending topic on Twitter and release it to the general public. It's kind of scary, but kind of astonishing in, uh, at the same time. Well, let's go back to what we just talked about then again a second ago with artists that are making Broadway musicals or doing whatever else. They are going to have to now be doing everything, even beyond what we talked about, if they're competing now with computer-generated stuff that can work at a thousand times more than they can. Because again, they people have to sleep, people have to be creative, people have to tinker and work at stuff. AI just, boom, it's out. And the most important thing, they're cheaper. Well, they're cheaper and presumably, and again, I'm no expert on how this would exactly work, but presumably if you were simply working with AI, uh, where a person might take, I don't know, what's, what's a, what would be, Eric, you've worked in the business for a long time. What would be a really fast turnaround for writing a song and getting it ready to perform in some way? And I'm not talking about Paul McCartney doing get back in the studio, like we saw in that movie, yeah. Yeah? but generally what would, Start uh, to finish, I'd say about a week. Okay. You could, presumably with AI, you could do... A thousand songs. In a week. During that time period. And all you need is what, one or two to actually work and you've got hits. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying that Ariana Grande is AI, but Ariana Grande's brand new single just came out Friday. There are 14 different versions of that song. 10 of them are in the top 10 or 11 on iTunes right now. What? And on oh, no, they have a slowed down version, a sped up version, an instrumental version, an a cappella version, um, the four remixes and the original song among many many others. AI can do all of that in 5 minutes. But did so she do all of these limited, things? You can have limited versions of a song by Drake coming out on Friday. You can have thousands of them if you want to. One for every person. Did she do all these ones though? Just different versions and then release them all at yeah, once? Yeah, pretty much. I, I, I'm guessing that what they did is they, they created the one song and then she left the studio then the producers created as many different styles of Weird. versions as possible. It's still the same song but now they're selling the instrumental they're selling a sped up version that TikTokers love, a slowed down version for you know the, the the Southern rappers to use. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different, so there's 14 different versions of one song that is on the charts right now. I mean, I, I immediately think of Eric Clapton with Layla, which was, you know, a huge like rock and roll hit. And then yeah. probably what, 25 years ago came out with that, uh, acoustic, acoustic version, version that yeah, also went number one. Minds over it, right. It was like, Oh, this is so, but that's two so clever. That's two though. That's two that's versions, two. not 10 yeah. versions. So Ariana Grande is seven times better than Eric Clapton. But again, think of with AI now, and if this is just the norm, you're right. You could potentially produce, I don't even know how it works. I mean, I can't explain how you do it, how many prompts or cues or whatever. But if you even made a hundred songs in a day, a hundred songs in a week, and all you would need is one or two of them to hit, and suddenly you're making money, whereas a human has to work at it. 
Uh, absolutely, for sure. Right now on the Billboard Hot 100, there's an estimated 35 to 40 percent of the songs are already using AI technology in some form or another, either helping them finish off a lyric, creating a melody, creating an orchestra of strings behind it. All of it is being used um, in a quicker, cheaper better manner than the human experience can, except for the fact that it doesn't have the nuances that, you know, musicians or you and I would have. Um, and once AI can develop that, just maybe not computer generated, but just these little nuances, say of me messing up a word here and there, AI will never do that. It'll just be perfect. And, you know, we got to, I mean, we got to go, but I, I, as I'm sitting here listening, I'm wondering whether that bothers me, and it bothers me in the sense that it's going to take work away from actual people, I would think, maybe. Oh, it bothers me to no end. But on the flip side, if AI puts out a song that I love the tune and that I want to hum along to and it makes me feel good, do I care whether it was AI or from a person? You are. I guarantee you, it won't bother you if you don't know but once you know, you're going to feel fooled. I will almost guarantee that. Another discussion for another day. We will do that discussion another absolutely. day, though. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Eric Alper, always love having you on here. Thanks for doing Thanks, this. Thanks, Scott. Uh, that is, yeah, that, there's one. There is a huge discussion. W- would you be bothered if a song that you really loved, if you discovered that it was written by and performed by and put together by a computer program rather than by a human? Now, Clearly, this is, this is silly what I'm going to say because we know based on timing that it's not. But if you learned today, if you're a Beatles fan and you learned that, say, yesterday, the song Yesterday, somehow Paul McCartney had whipped together with the help of a rudimentary computer and he didn't really write that, would that change your view of that song? We know that's, I mean, as I say, it's a silly example because we know that that's not the case, but I'm trying to use one that would be like one of the greatest songs of all time. Would that change your view of that song or would you simply say, I love that song. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care who writes it. Now, you know, the next, the next question, we're getting way, way off track here, but what would happen if you discovered that instead of AI writing a song, some terrible criminal had written a song that you've been humming along to. Some mass murderer you discover later. All right. Artist X is the one whose name is on that tune and it's a huge hit and you love that song. And all of a sudden, years later, we learn, oh, you know what? You know who sent them that song was so-and-so from prison, the person who killed 25 people. Would that change your fandom or appreciation of that song? Man, these are, we'll get into these questions later on. We will, we will do this another time. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.